The talk tonight is about doubt, impatience, and trust. Uh, the last two years I've been teaching in Upper Burma a three-week retreat that Steve uh, created with Sayadaw Ulakana. And this uh, monastery that I teach at in Upper Burma is over 650 years old. Uh, and people have been practicing there for probably over 1,500 years in this spot, maybe longer. Uh, so you can tell from the geology of the hills there that uh, caves um, were a natural uh, occurrence. So that must have been what drew people there originally, was this ease of, of having uh, shelter. And it was, it's right by the Irrawaddy River. Uh, the feeling that I have when I... Um, leave the Mandalay Airport and drive uh, down <coughs> the river and then across the Irrawaddy River and then back up to these hills called the Sagain Hills um, is quite profound because as I shift into Sagain, uh, just in the Sagain Hills there's over 4,000 nuns and over 3,000 monks plus the villagers. So there's this um, deep feeling of the river the village people, you know, the old land and the caves there, uh, the monks and nuns, really keeping alive this practice uh, for thousands of years. One of the um, cultural traits of people in Burma is they wear sandals. Uh, they're these little velvet sandals. Uh, and they don't have any back on them in the ankle. And I'm uh, the type of person who needs to have uh, a back on my ankle of whatever shoe I wear, or my back goes out royally. Uh, so the first year that I went there, I brought sneakers as my uh, footwear. And it just looked like I was the clodhopper American, you know, just kind of clomping around. and. Uh, I, as a teacher, I go in and out of the buildings there a lot, and one takes off one's shoes each time one goes in and then has to put them on. And, and as you can imagine, sneakers are a hassle, as well as uh, clodhopper looking. So uh, before I went <laughs> this last year, I had the quest for the perfect sandals, you know, the perfect shoe, so that I could go in and out of the buildings with more grace and ease and dignity. Uh, so I found a pair of rock ports with an elastic uh, backing on the ankle so that I could just bend over and take them on and off. Uh, and I felt so relieved that I had solved this problem. Uh, so the first night of the opening of this retreat, I missed uh, the manager's talk. And one of my friends there had lost their uh, sandals to a dog. A dog had eaten his sandal during the opening. <laughs> So the manager announced that, and uh, I missed that little detail of life at the monastery that year. Uh, so I went back up to my kuti that night, my little cottage. And this cottage is in the remote edge of this little monastery, so the forest is right next to it. On the first night, uh, a pack of dogs was barking outside my kuti all night, you know, like all night, right right like in my eardrum. So I didn't sleep the first night. And I was tired from traveling to Asia anyway, so that was my first night. Um, and then the second night, the dogs barked. This pack of dog, dogs barked all night outside my kuti. Uh, so I was starting to have a little aversion to the lack of sleep and these dogs. Uh, and then the third night, <laughs> there was no barking, you know, and I was I was just feeling all this metta for the dogs and being there, and I slept like a log, and I was so happy. And I walked out, and uh, you know, you leave your shoes outside your building there. So I walked out, and the dogs had eaten my sandals, and that's why they were so quiet. <laughs> uh, and going barefoot in Burma isn't a very good idea, so I've read and heard. You know, so I was walking barefoot down to the hall, thinking about the worms that can go up your feet into your heart and lungs, and <laughs> having more aversion. Uh, 
uh, and then I was sitting there in the hall, and I could hear the dogs barking, <laughs> and I was having more aversion. Uh, and then I came out of the hall to go up to do interviews at my kuti, uh, and I was walking along barefoot, again feeling a slight irritation at the circumstance, because you just can't go down to the store and buy a pair of rock ports, you know. This is like it for the time you're in Burma. There's no, nothing but these little velvet weird sandals that you can buy, um, which are size three. <laughs> so it was feeling kind of hopeless. Uh, and I was walking back up the hill, and I saw this mangy, thin dog. Uh, just, uh, if you saw this dog, you would feel so, co- so much compassion uh, for its state. Uh, and I looked at it, and it was sleeping underneath this tree in the shade. And I realized this dog was the one who ate my sandals. And I felt, instead of the aversion, all this compassion, and then a gratefulness that I could offer this dog my, my shoes. Uh, so I went from this incredible state of irritation or you know, a slight uh, aversion to being really joyful. And then my first interview, one of the yogis offered me her sandals. And then I had this whole other feeling of gratitude. Uh, and so when I started those first few days, you know, I didn't really see, did I come to this retreat to hear the dogs barking? You know, did I come all that way to do that? Or did I come all that way to lose my sandals? Uh, and we have to ask ourselves these questions when we're on retreat. Did I come all the way here to face fear? You know, did I come to this retreat to face irritation or fear of illness or death. It's like, you know, what are we doing here? And often whatever we're struggling with, you know, maybe it's the desire (laughs) for more enlightenment, you know, maybe it's uh, this desire for wisdom. Whatever it is we're struggling with, that's why we're at the retreat. It's the very thing, you know, we're wanting or not wanting that's going to liberate us. And it's so hard to see that sometimes. So I'd like to talk about the relationship between purification and doubt and patience. We're often aware that we come on a retreat to be liberated, to be free from struggling and and suffering. Uh, But the actuality of the purification process uh, sometimes eludes us in terms of why it has to happen this way. Uh, a peak experience in meditation in a day uh, is when the mindfulness, the energy, the concentration, and the equanimity come into some kind of balance. And this is when we see clearly. Uh, and it feels wonderful because it's so pure. So when aversion and attachment aren't present, uh, there's no separate self present. The I want or I don't want, that contraction, is when the separate self has appeared. Uh, And when the purity is there, it feels wonderful. And that feels like why we came to the retreat. And of course, uh, that's partly it. It's partly why we came to the retreat. And at some point, when we're um, having that time of purity, the energy will start to go down. Or the concentration might go down a little. Or maybe the equanimity slightly (laughs) goes down. Uh, And then we'll usually feel the attachment come in, because we don't want to lose that purity. Uh, And understanding this process is the most important thing on retreat and in life, is to see that just as the energy starts to go down, we're the most vulnerable. You know, we're wanting that purity to stay. Uh, And at the same time, there's a layer of aversion and attachment, aversion, that we're just about to get clobbered by (laughs) if we don't see it clearly. Uh, If mindfulness, energy, concentration, and equanimity are in balance, the mind is transparent, and there's absolutely no resistance to what appears. Uh, so we don't need aversion and attachment not to appear. It's fine if we see it clearly, 
there's that transparency. We just know, oh, the wanting mind. And it's okay, and it'll come and go. Even it can come and go in a second or two seconds because we don't resist, we don't identify. And it moves just like the sound of a bird or the movement of the breath. And we'll see again that, oh, this is what I came to retreat for. I'm so grateful. Uh, But again, remember that that's a peak experience. Usually what happens is that when the aversion and attachment appear, we'll resist it. Because we feel like it's somehow tainting this purity. Now, this shouldn't be part of the retreat. This isn't what's really supposed to be happening. Because we don't remember that it's the purification as well as the purity that we've come to retreat for. If you look honestly at the times of purity, we will judge those times as good practice and why we came here. And when the purification is happening, we often, well, at least when the resistance to the purification is happening, we often call that bad practice, and it's why we didn't come here. If you look honestly, the times of purity is when we plan our next retreats. (laughs) We go to Asia, you know, we can't imagine being in a householder ever again. You know, we try to figure out all the ways in which we can practice forever. And when the resistance to the purification is happening, we make the calendars yet again to make sure we've got the right amount of days till the time is over. Most of us know how many days there that we have left to be here. And this is normal. It's not like this is abnormal. It's that interpretation we make about purity and purification. But unfortunately, the worst interpretation besides good and bad practice is that when we start judging the purification as bad practice, then we usually make an interpretation about ourselves, and the self-doubt appears, and the self-hatred. So it becomes, you know, I can't do this, or I can't stand this, or this is too hard, or this isn't working for me. And it'll shift into, you know, (laughs) this just proves that I'm a worthless, no good human being, you know, and why bother? Uh, So we feel like a failure, and we bottom out. It's important to notice that as the purity starts to get a little less intense, uh, and we have that sense of not wanting to lose it, we've already lost it. You know, you can feel just that that movement of, oh no, (laughs) I'm losing it. And just as you're saying, oh no, I'm losing it, if you can see that carefully, of course, you won't get caught in it. You'll just see they're just thoughts, and you can manage to recover the balance. But that takes enough mindfulness and equanimity to do that. If the energy is going down and equanimity going down, we'll start getting identified with this place in practice. This process of purification, when we start identifying with losing it, can seem like a bad joke. You know, we just can't see it. We just can't get why, why does this have to happen? Uh, because again, we're so identified with the purity as being why we're here. Purity is what makes space for the liberating process to happen. It's what makes space for the purification to happen. So it's literally just like you have clean water, and you take a dirty cloth, and you put it in the water, and you rub it. And especially if you had a little soap, the soap's like the mindfulness, energy, concentration, and equanimity. The dirt will come out. That's when the aversion and then the attachment appears. Uh, And then we think something's wrong. Another thing that can happen besides the self-doubt is a kind of fear that we think that the um, aversion and attachment invalidate the purity. You know, somehow we believe that what we did experience, that purity, probably isn't real. And we, we don't trust the practice itself. We don't trust our own process of freedom. So we can get so identified with doubt 
that the purification process can't happen. You know, we just close down and we don't allow that layer of aversion and or attachment to appear and work with it. For me, beginning to understand the cycle of purity and then the layer of aversion and attachment appearing and the resistance and identification uh, and then the doubt, (laughs) the self-hatred or the blaming of others, you know, blaming something about the retreat or whatever. Um, This understanding that that's just a cycle has really helped me keep going when the purification is happening. There's a very uh, simple book called The Prayer Tree by an Australian man named Michael Lunig. Uh, and he describes this process in a very simple way. When the heart is cut or cracked or broken, do not clutch it. Let the wound lie open. Let the wind from the good old sea blow in to bathe the wound with salt and let it sting. Let a stray dog lick it. Let a bird lean in the hole and sing a simple song like a tiny bell and let it ring. Let it go, let it out, let it all unravel. Let it free and it can be a path on which to travel. Well, this is called the path of purification. (laughs) You know, and it's so hard to remember that sometimes. It's a path on which to travel, the purity and the purification. One of my first long retreats here at IMS, probably it was my first long retreat, Um, one of my teachers, uh, who I just had for a few days, uh, told me to go to my room and sit and not come out. Uh, And it was kind of like a very different instruction. I'd always um, been sitting in the hall here. Uh, And it was kind of like uh, pushing me, I think, further than probably I needed at that particular point in time. But anyway, I went in my room. Uh, And this um, aversion started building, but I didn't really see it building and building and building and building. Um, And if I had maybe gone outside for a little walk, it might not have exploded to this extent. But anyway, I was in this room, and it was a single room, but next door to me was a woman who snored uh, so intensely that at night my room would kind of vibrate, uh, uh, you know, (laughs) all night. and so here I was, you know, not only during the day, but at night sitting in this room, and I didn't understand at all the relationship between, you know, av- uh, unpleasant and aversion, you know, and, and the, what I'm describing. I was just really green uh, in practice. So, uh, you know, the first night, the second night, you know, and this just aversion started building. Um, uh, and I was sitting next to the wall. Um, and I kind of, by the sound of the, the snoring, I could tell where this woman's head was. I, you know, and I hate to confess this, but at some point, I took my bench and I just threw it against the wall, right where her head was. You know, <laughs> <laughs> and she stopped snoring. <laughs> I'm surprised she didn't have a heart attack, really. Um, but. <laughs> She stopped snoring, but boy, I felt pretty bad, you know. But I just, just was so lost, you know, and I didn't know what really happened, you know. And then I was kind of happy that the snoring stopped for a while, you know. And that night ended, and um, then the next night, this was in the cold time of year here, uh, so the heat was on, um, and it was much colder than this. It was more like late November. Uh, so th- then it wasn't just the snoring, it was the sound of the heat started. All this aversion was happening. It was unpleasant, you know, and there was aversion. But I didn't, again, understand this relationship. Uh, and I felt like I was just going to lose it. Uh, but I was trying not to go outside, which would have probably 
put a little space in my mind. Um, and I finally um, curled up in the fetal position on my bed and just curled up, and it just didn't help. I was just in just massive aversion. So I went around all of the buildings at IMS, you know, everywhere, because I had worked on staff, and I turned all the heat off. <laughs> this was like about one in the morning. And then um, <laughs> I went out for breakfast, and everybody had their coats on. <laughs> and you could see, you know, you could see everyone's breath. And I was like, oh, God. <laughs> and I went back to my room, and it was like, just, just felt terrible, you know. And uh, then I waited for the 8.15 sitting in the morning, and I went around, and I turned all the heat back up. But I was still just uh, miserable, just miserable. Uh, and I finally just, um, you know, it was just like this determination to understand. I mean, it was just, I w- it, w- it was so painful to see myself lose it like that and not understand that that night when um, the snoring started again, I just sat there, sat there, sat there. It was similar to that feeling of the Buddha just saying, I'm not going to get up until I understand this. I started to see that relationship between unpleasant feeling and aversion and realized that I could be mindful of the aversion and then shift to the sound. Um, and I, it's like breaking through to just, it was just sound. It was just sound appearing and disappearing by itself. Uh, If you had asked me during that week of being in my room, if I had come to the retreat to hear this woman snoring, I would have just been furious. I would have said no. You know, and if so you had asked me if I came to the retreat to work with the aversion to the sound of the heat, I would have said no. You know, I really want peace and quiet. I want it to be the way I want it. Uh, and it took so much um, actual kind of um, remorse for me to really try to get the determination to break the barrier with my own aversion to the aversion. So I understood, finally, during that time, that what I'd been running from my whole life was that aversion to pain, was the aversion to the suffering of the aversion to the aversion. And this is what was very helpful for me in terms of uh, in the past, what I would always do when I would hit that wall would be to go out in nature somewhere and soften, uh, but I wouldn't return to what was stimulating the aversion. I would run from it and run from it so that I didn't have to face the aversion. So maybe for you it isn't aversion. You know, I'll give an example of wanting, uh, but if this is a very... Uh, mild example, I've just been giving you um, the aversive side, which is more my fire uh, this lifetime. <coughs> Recently, uh, we had some visitors at our home in Honolulu, uh, and I was traveling a lot this summer, and these visitors were there midsummer, and they were there uh, for about two weeks. And uh, I have a favorite cup. I also really like tea. So when I wake up in the morning, I'm very attached to getting my favorite cup and making a cup of tea and drinking from this cup. So this uh, person who was visiting liked my cup too. (laughs) And this person would get the cup before I could get the cup in the morning and uh, drink the tea. But not only that, but they would leave the cup in their room all day and all night, like they just got very attached to this cup and left it to my room. Probably they didn't even realize they were doing it, Uh, but I started trying to pretend that it didn't bother me, you know, that I didn't really care if they had the cup. So two days would go by and three days would be (laughs) gone, and I'd actually go in their room and kind of look for my cup and kind (laughs) of stare at it wistfully. But I wouldn't let myself take it. I would have the control and the dignity not to take the cup. But then the next morning, I I would have to take another cup. It was unbelievably, it just felt so stupid. Um, (laughs) But each day would go by, and I would still, whenever that person wasn't around, I'd go in my room, and I would just 
in their room and I'd stare at the cup. And finally, I would just, I just said, oh, wanting. You know, it was just, it was that simple. I was resisting the experience of wanting. And finally, when I just let myself want it, it was fine. And I could let <laughs> this person have this cup. It was no big deal. But the resistance to the wanting was what was the problem. And it was so painful to watch myself, you know, try to rationalize, I don't need that cup, it's really nice that this person has this cup, I should be generous. You know, the whole thing about what we do to avoid just experiencing wanting. We can't control what's appearing. We can't control if the wanting appears or the aversion appears, but we can control how we relate to it. If we resist it or we indulge it, it doesn't work. It backfires on us. One of the reasons that (coughs) we encourage people to keep their eyes secluded, you know, to not look up a lot at each other, uh, it's not to make this place look like zombie land, you know, like a kind of pitiful place to live. Uh, (laughs) although it can look like that. Uh, But it's really around protecting concentration. Because if we were looking up all the time, then we would be getting caught in judgment and uh, lost in the stories around people. Because you can't control it. If you look, there'll be a judgment, and then they'll be thinking about it. Uh, So the less you look, when you do look, you'll see it very clearly. You know, so it can get to the point where we can just see somebody's shoes and get attracted. You know, we don't even need a leg or a hand. You know, we don't even need a nose or a mouth. You know, we can just get the part of somebody, you know, and there'll be just that whiff of attraction. You know, or somebody else might, we can just see a sock and there'll be that aversion. You know, it's amazing. And the more we seclude ourselves, the more we can see. It's so conditioned. It's so fast. It's like, wham. And before we know it, you know, we've married the person, you know, we've lived, had children or divorced, you know, and we're dead. (laughs) All in like a 10-minute fantasy, all from one look. And again, it doesn't even need a head. You know, this is, you know, we don't need an arm or a leg. It's just a sock or a shoe. (laughs) And if we judge this, you know, this practice will seem impossible. But if we start to see that, we start to slow it down and get still enough to see, oh, this is pleasant. The the look with the eyes and something about that person will trigger pleasantness. And then instead of bringing the mindfulness back inside, we resist the experience of attraction. And it's either that we think, this isn't me, I'm not doing this, I'm not attracted. Or, you know, we think, oh, (laughs) this is great. You know, I really like this person. I wonder why I like this person. Oh, you know, and on and on and on and on and on. And then we see if we can see them in the dining room or we see if we can see them outside. Or There's that whole shifting into the indulgence rather than the repression. But either way, not acknowledging that it happens or indulging it will backfire. You know, we either get more afraid of the wanting mind or we get more indulgent. So this is why we come to the retreat, is to start to uncover the wanting mind and the aversive mind, because it's where we suffer. Uh, we tend to hear the teachings of liberation, and it's like it's a carrot that's held up, and we want a beeline for that, uh, whatever it is. You know, this whatever full enlightenment is. Uh, we have this idea about it. But the reality is that this takes patience, and one step at a time. And we have to learn how to work with the aversion and the attachment before we get liberated from it. So the way out is always through in this practice, through the mindfulness, through being, through being willing to experience the wanting mind, 
for the aversive mind. And if there's the mindfulness present, there'll be recognition, acceptance, interest, non-identification. When we see that clearly, it's like the thorn gets pulled out of the heart. And it's just, oh, it's just attraction. (laughs) It just comes and goes, again, like the sound of a bird or the sound of the heat. When we can have this kind of clarity with a movement of the breath, sometimes it can help us to see how to work with uh, resistance or aversion or attachment. Um, can help us see how to work with it more clearly by working with it with something so simple like the breath. So say we're with the movement of the breath and we recognize movement. Uh, we don't have to think, oh, this is air element. Uh, but we can at least, uh, at times, recognize that it might be just light pressure moving. Acceptance is allowing it to be just was it what it is. So there's the recognition that something's moving, maybe that simple. And then the acceptance is uh, allowing it to be like it is. So maybe we want it to be a little more clear, or maybe we want it to be... Uh, more intense sensations, or maybe we want it slower or deeper. But acceptance is just letting it be refined like it is. Interest is being able to uh, have that sense. Um, Maybe it's not like it's just for the first time, but it's that sense of a shift in attitude where we've seen that movement thousands of times and we just don't have an interest in it. It's, it's, an, it's a very unexpected shift in attitude to, oh, you know, what is this? Uh, this is why the Buddha called investigation like a light bulb going off in the mind. It's that light that comes in the mind and we can go, oh, what is this? You know, what is my experience free from the past or future? So we move from it just being another breath uh, to beginner's mind or don't know mind, just letting it come and go by itself. Non-identification is when we understand at the moment of the movement of the breath uh, that there's no one who breathes, only breathing. So it's, it's not my breath, uh, it's just breathing. Sometimes I shift my attitude with this if it doesn't have this way of perceiving where it's just air element or just movement. Sometimes I shift to seeing that I'm just borrowing air element. And it's like we borrow our body to be here. We're borrowing earth element to be incarnated. We're borrowing air, earth, water, fire. Uh, And this is another way we can work with things coming and going in the body and mind. If we learn to be mindful of a breath in this way, uh, then if aversion or attachment comes up, we can also learn to try to have that attitude of interest. Oh, you know, what is wanting? Free from any idea about it from the past. As you can probably tell from my descriptions, uh, aversion is one of the things I have had to work with in this lifetime a lot. Uh, So I did a self-retreat this past November, and I think it was the first time in my practice uh, that I was in a situation where there wasn't a construction project going (laughs) right by my window, or, you know, just a lot of... um, intensity of human sound. Uh, you know, so uh, being an aversion type, it was just like, wow, this is different, this is great, you know, and I'm sitting in my room, you know, for a few days, and it was so quiet. I wasn't used to having that kind of quiet before. You know, so the, the intensity, having to work with that intensity of aversion 
uh, the first few days wasn't appearing, and it was such a relief, but you know, <laughs> I was a little suspicious <laughs> that it could be that quiet. Uh, so I was sitting there one afternoon, uh, very quiet, and I could hear way in the distance. I mean, these people talking had to be so far away, you know, from my ear door. <laughs> just distant, distant, just the slightest sound. You know how when you just start to hear the geese, you know, flying overhead, you just get that feeling like you've got a radio on you, just tuning into it. That's how distant these human voices were. Uh, and it was just sound. And the next moment, it was like this kind of enameled, deep, old, like caked on rage surfaced. It was so, it was such a surprise. It was incredible. And it was just like, whoa, you know, how could things be so quiet and this amount of just enamel? It was just that cooked (laughs) enamel uh, kind of rage. Uh, And then there was this fear. You know, it's like, can I be with this? It was like the deep root, the deepest root of aversion I'd ever seen in such quiet surface. And there was that sense, whoa, I don't know if I can experience this. This is really painful. (laughs) You know, took a few breaths and just tried to let it through. That it took hours, you know, just to make space for it and to make space for it. once I finally made the space for it, I had such a sense of relief. You know, it's just like, how much energy did it take to, to, to keep that hidden? You know, um, lifetimes, I think. It just felt so old and so deep. And I had, again, that gratitude, you know, for the, the breadth of this practice. In some ways, if you ask me, you know, have you worked with aversion or fear before? And I'd think, you know, I probably feel like I'd been to the core of it, and yet there was another core. Uh, and have you been with the heart center a lot? <laughs> you know, it feels like it's opened as far as it's going to open, and whoa, there was more. <laughs> and it was great. You know, it wasn't, um, it was that feeling of awe about this practice, and understanding that that's what it takes to be liberated, that that willingness to go through that. Um, If you ask me what I remember the most from my self-retreat, I could describe some wonderful places of purity. But if you ask me what I'm the most grateful for, it would be that, you know, it's just that layer emerging out of that quiet and peace. Because I know that's where the liberation happens as well, the purity and the purification. When we're resisting the new layer that emerges, often will describe the process of purification as somehow feeling beat up by aversion, or we feel kind of beat up by obsessive thinking. Uh, And whether we're lost in the surface chatter of the mind, or deeper obsessive thinking, or maybe we're struggling with surface tensions in the body, or maybe the deeper knots in the body, uh, it's important to remember that uh, if resistance is happening, We'll want to get it out of the way. You know, we'll want something to be over with. I want, you know, the purity back. Uh, One of my favorite expressions that people use is, you know, why is this still happening? And it always comes down to ambition or expectation. If something is still (laughs) happening, it means not so much that that particular knee pain is there, not particular story happening, but what's underneath it. It's it's either aversion or attachment. In this tradition, at least until third stage of enlightenment, this is going to be happening. You know, you, you see it, you see it, it's still happening, and you keep getting practice to work with it and work with it and work with it and work with it 
and it just goes deeper and deeper. It's wonderful. (laughs) The places of purity will happen, those appearances of the purity will happen. The more the purity happens, the more the purification happens. Uh, So this process will accelerate and accelerate as we understand this. Another way of saying this is that resistance takes so much energy. You know, and as the mindfulness comes in, there's less resistance, so there's more energy. Uh, so the more purification can happen. Uh, and it, it's just uh, this deepening, multi-dimensional stream of awakening. If in the practice you find that you're becoming less and less tolerant of the purification process, then something's wrong. Uh, But what I find with most people that I work with is that over the years, that commitment to this process keeps deepening because we see the power of the liberation. And we see when we go back out into our lives how different it is. It's like the freedom and the possibilities for more freedom uh, is what keeps us going. If there's impatience in this process, then doubt will appear, because the pace will seem too slow. We tend to try to meddle with the aversion and attachments. It's like we meddle with the knots. Uh, And when you're meddling with the knots, I recommend going back to the breath. Uh, Because if you're meddling, if you're trying to get rid of, or if you're wanting something to be happening, if you're trying to get rid of aversion, or get rid of knee pain, or whatever it is, just go back to the breath. Or just go to sound. Um, Because all you're doing is tightening the knot. And the knots untangle themselves. And when we see clearly, the process happens by itself. It's like, oh, it's just wanting. I don't need to get involved with that anymore. And the knot untangles itself. So we learn how to work with the aversion and the attachment. And the lighter surface aversion and attachments over time just start to disappear. Uh, There will be such gratitude for that. It's like maybe um, you did a retreat two years ago, and what bothered you in that retreat probably won't be the same thing that bothers you this retreat in terms of the story. Uh, But in terms of the deeper root of aversion and attachment, you'll see, oh yeah, there's a theme here. (laughs) Yeah, it's aversion again. Oh yeah. And we learn to work with it more skillfully. To me, the places of um, maybe the more chronic physical pain or the more chronic emotional or psychological pain teach us the most about anatta. We just can't will ourselves through these places. You know, we can will ourselves through a lot in this world, uh, but you can't will yourself through, you know, chronic emotional or physical stuff. Uh, And that's the gift in these um, situations as a human. Uh, It requires that letting go of control, uh, but not giving up. It requires the patience, but the determination to see clearly. So if we have that balance of not giving up, but not not trying to fix things, uh, these, these knots, these chronic places, Um, will undo themselves slowly. This might not mean that um, something physical might disappear. What will disappear is the aversion or the attachment in relationship to it. And you'll see that that's how you're getting liberated, that that particular not this lifetime is teaching you how to work with aversion.
or attachment. This process is unique for each of us. Uh, but the depth of the suffering is similar. We had um, Sayada Upandita visit us in Hawaii this spring, um, and he kind of partially taught a retreat uh, that had us teach most of us, <laughs> most of the retreat, Steve and I. And we took him out on a sailboat, but he wouldn't um, go out on the sailboat unless we convinced him that it was an educational experience, not for entertainment, because monks can't... Um, indulge in entertainment. Uh, And on the way to the sailboat, we were in some traffic. And so we were going through red lights and green lights. And after a while, he started laughing. And he said, um, Westerners like the color green, but they don't like the color red. (laughs) That was just from observing how we drive. You know, Westerners don't like the color red. You know, do we like that feeling of having to let this process happen by itself? You know, and just getting out of the way. There's a tendency to either want to give up and say it's impossible, I can't do it, which is a doubt, um, or to step on the gas and, you know, try too hard. Finding that balance of patience and determination is really right effort. When I was in um, the Sagain Hills this year, I met a, a monk on top of the hill where, where the monastery is. Uh, And he's probably one of the purest monks I've ever met in terms of kind of protecting his practice and protecting his solitude. Uh, And through a translator, I asked him a little bit about his practice, and he spent a couple of years um, just reflecting on the virtue of the Buddha. Now, these are practices that we sometimes recommend doing for a minute a day or a minute in front of an hour sitting. You know, but he spent some years just doing the reflections on the virtues of the Buddha. And then he spent a few years reflecting. Again, these are so-called preliminary practices, but spent years uh, doing the metta, you know, and then spent years doing <laughs> so-and-so years doing so-and-so. Uh, and there was such a sense of just utter humility, just no hurry at all. Just that sense in the Sagain Hills, there's the kind of sense of timelessness, that we have all the, the time in the world. And if you knew you had all the time in the world, um, you wouldn't mind doing, reflecting on the qualities of the Buddha for a couple years. You know, it's just, it's just a different mind state than our sense of time, which is, you know, I only have six weeks, Uh uh-oh, gotta go. We're almost out of time, huh? You know? (laughs) Better get going. We have this really different sense of time. Uh, The more you start to slip into that sense of the mindfulness and really being in the present moment, you'll start to see that there's this timelessness and that you do have all the time in the world to work with it. Uh, so this time, talking with this particular um, monk, he's a Sayadaw. Uh, maybe I talked with him for about 10 or 15 minutes. And just before I left, he looked at me and he said, uh, next time, next year when you come, don't expect me to talk so much. And it was like, I was like, oh, so we really had a long conversation, huh? I mean, it was just, again, I was, you know, my mind practically stopped. It was like, this was, this was for him, a lot of talking. 
And to me, it was like him saying, okay, you know, next year when you come, it's going to be shorter. Um, You know, that's such a different sense of silence and talking uh, and patience, humility. So I'd like to try to really encourage you to just keep in mind that, that balance between the purity, the purification, trying not to take that um, so personally that you get too lost in the doubt. Just find that balance of not giving up um, and finding the pace that works for you. And all the blessings of wisdom and compassion come from that. But it, it takes time in this timeless world. So let's sit for a minute. May we be free from suffering. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.